Welcome to The Future of Journalism, a podcast from the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. I'm Mira Selva, Director of the Journalist Fellowship Programme at the Institute. This is a year of news, but also of quite spectacular misinformation, disinformation, fake news and propaganda, much of it coming from the very top, from presidents and other leaders. This presents all newsrooms with a huge dilemma. How do you report on powerful people when they are lying? How do you deal with the huge wave of misinformation that floods the internet? Do you ignore it, fact check it or laugh at it? Our guest today is Rebecca Skippage, head of the BBC Monitoring Disinformation Unit and a journalist fellow here at the Reuters Institute. Rebecca, welcome and thank you for being with us today. My pleasure. I just wanted to ask you a little bit, first of all, about your role at BBC Monitoring. It's a relatively new unit dealing with disinformation, but BBC Monitoring has dealt with propaganda and the idea of conflicting narratives for a long time now. Why did they feel they needed to create a slightly different role and take a slightly different approach to it? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Mira. Um, BBC Monitoring started, gosh, just over 80 years ago now. Um, and was set up to listen into uh, open source German radio propaganda at the beginning of the First World War. Um, and over the last 80 years has um, listened to uh, Russian radio broadcasts, to uh, TV that's come from all over the world, and, and very much is used to kind of plugging into what primarily then was the, the state narratives about um, the messaging that was trying to be used to form the way that people um, um, people thought, um, sometimes at odds with uh, the actual facts on the ground, shall we say. So it was, I think, I, after the, uh, the 2016 election that um, most people began to really realise that, um, as, uh, as it was called then, fake news um, by, uh, by Donald Trump, um, or disinformation as we, we prefer to call it, was something that was really having a huge impact on uh, the way that people perceive news, the way that people um, look at truth, um, and the way that people potentially engage with the democratic process. And it was really felt that um, the BBC should be very much on the front foot as far as this was concerned, and that we should play a big part in, um, you know, in combating that, in uh, informing our viewers and our listeners and our readers about what it was, what it is, um, uh, explaining how they can um, inform them themselves to, you know, ghastly phrase, but inoculate themselves against it to a certain extent. Um, and so Jamie Angus, who's um, head of the World Service Group, came to monitoring I went to the then director and said, um, look, you know, you guys are the people who have been listening into this for the last 80 years. Would you be interested in forming a disinformation team? Um, and we, of course, were absolutely delighted to do that. Um, and just over two years ago, um, I formed a team. Um, we have specialists uh, specifically in uh, Russia and the wider FSU, in Iran and the Middle East um, and in China in the careers. But what we have is this network also of um, 200 plus journalists in our 13 bureaus around the uh, world who are also kind of listening into this sort of material on, on a day-to-day, minute-by-minute basis and are able to really kind of inform the sort of reporting that we're doing. Can you explain that a little bit more? Because what you've described sounds like monitoring, which is what you did. And how is this more journalism? How does it inform the reporting? 
Absolutely. Well, I mean, monitoring actually is 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 somewhat of a misnomer now, um, <laughs> but because um, all of our um, journalists are journalists, they used to be monitors. It used to be um, a, a less uh, journalistic endeavour. Um, but certainly for the last, I would say, sort of ten years or so, um, the journalistic um, focus has been very clear at monitoring, um, and. What we there, there certainly is still a, a lot of you know simply you know listening and 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 transcribing and um, sort of putting um, reports out that that simply sort of explain what what's going on. But increasingly, what we do is we analyze and we say this is the reason that this is important, um, and we put out explainers and we put out things that um, kind of not only go into um, what is being said, but why it is being said, and crucially, rather sometimes what is not being said. And I think the use, um, the, the, the place that the disinformation unit plays is that it can take one step back even further from that and to start joining the dots and saying, okay, you know, these are the sorts of narratives that keep coming through, or rather sometimes the, this is a narrative that has now changed and to sort of take a step back and say, what is it that is now trying to be achieved by that? And I think also having this global reach, it's we're able, and I would say probably uniquely, um, to, to join up the narratives across regions. So we can look at a situation like Syria, which has got so many competing narratives that are going on and say, okay, this is what um, the, the Turkish state media are saying. This is what um, the pro-government um, uh, forces are saying um, and, and try and sort of create a, a, you know, a, a more genuine picture uh, of what's happening, but at the same time explaining why these different narratives are kind of fighting against each other. And this year in particular with COVID-19, what kind of disinformation strategies or narratives have you seen being created? I mean, what, what, what was really fascinating is that as soon as um, COVID started, um, we started sort of obviously, you know, getting rumours coming out of, um, out of China from our sort of traditional monitoring, if you will. Um, and almost as soon as that happened, the disinformation virus, if you will, the infodemic, as people are, are categorizing it, started alongside. And what we've been able to, to see, and again, this is um, a, a great value of having this kind of global um, perspective, is that almost the same uh, stories, the same false narratives, uh, kind of wave across the earth, wave across the globe, um, as the as the pandemic does, and some of them are reasonably innocuous. So we we sort of raise our eyebrows as it's ah oh, yes, it's the let's all drink lemon juice uh, bit of dis disinformation, which you know pops up as soon as as soon as it sort of uh, the uh, as COVID appears in in a various area. But there are those um, pieces of disinformation, of course, that are much much more concerning. Um, some of them are reasonably specific to countries so you get um, we've had in uh, in in India um, a sort of uh, a lots of, of information uh, misinformation earlier in the year um, about how various different religious um, minority groups were the people who were spreading it uh, and of course that sort of played into the uh, the, the political um, could sort of uh, the, the political um, um, authorities wanting to, to 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 raise up discontent amongst uh, different uh, different uh, people in in that part of the world, uh, and you also saw coming into um, to Europe this kind of amalgamation of um, anti five G sentiment of, of then um, them sort of rolling in the anti vax. 
uh, notion and that then became part of the anti-mask thing. So you re really got, and we, we see this a lot with disinformation of people appropriating lots of different types of narratives, um, being very opportunistic about what is, is, is particularly sort of of interest um, to, uh, to people online at that point um, and, and sort of appropriating that and rolling that into something that uh, allows them to get their, their sort of their, uh, their key concern, if you will, across. And then the, uh, the other kind of, you know, big daddy of everything of, of the anti-disinformation, um, which has kind of also been rolled into COVID has been uh, QAnon, and that's really been off the back of, of the uh, the anti the anti vaccine and the anti mask sentiment that QAnon has kind of managed to worm its way in there as well. And this this kind of misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theories spreads online, presumably through social media. At what point do you think the media should get involved? Because this is something. Do you, do you pick it up and report on it? Do you ignore it? Do you create a vacuum for information? What do you do? And do you, yeah, what do yeah. you think on that? No, it, I mean, it's it's really interesting. So, I mean, I've been a journalist for 20, 25 years yeah. now. Um, and this is a really different news cycle from anything I've been involved with before. And, and actually one of the... Um, um, one of the kind of constant um, almost dilemmas that we we have found, um, just to give a very, very little bit of, of, of a backstory here, at, at the beginning of March, my team were asked to join together with Reality Check and BBC Trending uh, and Beyond Fake News to form a kind of uh, a, a loose sort of cooperative of, of those of us who were all kind of working in the same area. Um, ostensibly to, to focus at that point, we thought on the US election, but but we ended up, of course, focusing very heavily on COVID as well. So at least you were set up in time. Right, exactly. Literally a week before we went into lockdown. <laughs> so it, it's been a fascinating experience and a wonderful experience. It really has been. Um, but, but it has been, um, some of it has been sort of slightly trial and error. And I think the biggest question that we, we, we sort of faced is, um, you know, when do we cover stories and when do we not? Because particularly because we're the, the BBC, you know, we put something online and it amplifies it. So the, uh, the two things that we uh, constantly look at as far as whether something is, is, worth us uh, is worth us covering are intent, you know, is this something which is actually, as I say, sort of pretty innocuous and is probably um, not really going to, to, to cause that much trouble. Um, but or or, are, or is there a sort of an in, intent for it to actually cause you know serious harm, a serious impact on the democratic process, um, serious injury to people? And then we look, and this is probably the crucial bit: we look at impact. So you know, how many people is this reaching? Is this jumping into other languages? Is this going across platforms? Is this reaching, you know, hundreds of, uh, of thousands of people um, on, you know, as I say, on sort of Facebook? Has it gone to TikTok? Has it, has it reached sort of not necessarily the sorts of people that you would expect um, something like, uh, you know, uh, an anti-5G conspiracy theory to, to reach? Has it jumped into the mainstream, if you will? And I think particularly if we're then seeing um, a sort of potential real world action that come, that uh, come, could come out of that, whether that be, you know, injecting yourself with bleach, whether that could be, um, you know, taking up arms as we're seeing um, just 
as, as we're speaking now, there's a, a Stop the Steal um, group on Facebook that's just been taken down, which is uh, encouraging, uh, was, has been encouraging people to take direct action uh, in the, uh, uh, the, the US um, election. Um, whether it's that sort of thing or, you know, uh, uh, setting fire to 5G masks that we saw over the summer, that's the time that we then have to, we feel, have a responsibility to, to, put, uh, to put material out. Um, we have to be incredibly, incredibly careful about being accurate in what we say. I mean, obviously, that is always our, you know, our goal is highest accuracy anyway, but um, there is nothing that undermines a piece on disinformation more than getting the information wrong. So, you know, that's that's been really, really one of the key things is that, you know, we don't publish, um, we don't want to publish too quickly. We want to make sure that we've got the information right, that we've got the debunks right, that we've got as many experts as possible. Um, um, and and then we get it right. Um, uh, sorry, then we get it out, and hopefully we yeah. get it right. But I would say that at the moment, I'm I'm as you as you mentioned in, in Oxford, but my colleagues working on uh, the U.S. election, I absolutely take my hat off to them because they're they're having to do this absolutely at pace, and I think they're doing a magnificent job. This is um this is kind of the broader issue because you you cl very clearly outlined the cases where you pick up a story or a, a rumor and fact check it and debunk it and put the information out. But ultimately, this could just take over all newsrooms, you know, all newsrooms to just spend their entire time fact checking and debunking. Do you think there's a broader solution, something to do with media literacy or an explanation of where news comes from that could help solve this issue as well? Well, um, that's actually the project that I'm working on now. So, <laughs> so I hope I come up with a solution in the next three months. months. Exactly, exactly. I'm sure. I'm sure I'll, I'll yeah. find one. Yeah, I mean, certainly the research that I've done at the moment and my, you know, my my experience of, of, of doing this is that I think there is probably a suite of options that that we can that we that we should be offering people. Um, I mean, for me, critical thinking and media literacy are absolutely at the key of this. It's been interesting to talk to educators about how critical thinking seems not to be such a key part of the curriculum as it is it used to be. And I wonder whether there's anything around that that, that maybe an organisation like the BBC could could look to um, to sort of you know to provide some additional support around. Um, I think fact checking is important. Um, the uh, the there is um, a kind of school of thought that says you know if you say to somebody who passionately believes something they're wrong, that won't have any impact on it. Um, but I think that there is uh, a great sort of swathe of people who do get huge benefit from fact checking. Um, and it is something that, you know, news organisations should be doing. However, as you say, it can completely take over um, what it is that you do. So one of the things that I'm looking at is how actually you can kind of embed that into uh, the, the more, the sort of the wider, more in inverted commas, kind of normal news gathering that you do. So it's kind of part of what we do on a regular basis rather than being kind of siloed off into a separate, uh, into a separate uh, bit of the newsroom. What do you mean by that? Well, I, my concern with um, with anything that might be seen as something that is um, less mainstream is that if you get if you make a sort of a separate um, a separate department that just simply um, looks into one particular area, that it might be that people feel, oh well, you know, we don't need to worry so much about that. Um, they are looking into it. Whereas my 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 feeling is is that this should be absolutely as part of the DNA of a uh, of, of a of a sort of general 
reporting and general news gathering and production system um, as we would be sort of checking how somebody's name is spelt. Um, and I think some of the call, the, uh, the, the skills um, that we have got within our team as far as verification, as far as debunking, as far as how we call these things out, um, I'd like to see them more embedded into the general news gathering. And that's something that I'm going to be looking at as part of my project. And have you got a sense of how this um, works plays out amongst audiences and viewers? Are they grateful for you for doing this? Or is it an element of they feel like you're giving them some medicine that they know is good for them, but they really rather not take it? I think that's one of the kind of balancing acts that, that we have to have to deal with. Nobody likes to feel that, that, that they are being lectured at. Mm. Um, I think we have a really talented bunch, um, certainly within the team that, that I'm part of, of people who know how to um, sort of explain and communicate um, in a way that is, um, is much more kind of appetizing. We have um, um, a, a wonderful reporter called Mariana Spring, who has done some really great work on uh, the social media platform saying, this is how you can... Yeah. Uh, look out for it yourself but I think that there is also there is a real void as far as people's um, uh, sense of what, what is right and what is wrong at the moment and I mean if you just look at this this very minute on the the, the story that is uh, top of the BBC news site and it's the uh, reality check done into the 17 minute speech that Donald Trump gave yesterday um, that's on Thursday on Thursday, I apologize, yeah. the 70-minute uh, speech um, Donald Trump gave uh, um, on Thursday um, about uh, false claims to do with, um, well, generally to do with mail-in ballots. So I think people are aware that their political leaders are not perhaps as straightforward as once they hoped they were. And there is a desire to, to be able to sort of to, uh, to come to an organization that they still do trust um, and see you know, what it is that's really true. It's really interesting. And it's, as I said, it's an amazing year to have um, been joined forces with the other parts of the BBC working on this to, to, um, to address this issue. Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time today. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. So our guest today was Rebecca Skippage, head of the BBC Monitoring Disinformation Unit and a journalist fellow at the Reuters Institute. Make sure to follow our podcast channel on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss the next episode. And if you don't want to miss any news from the Institute, subscribe to our weekly newsletter by clicking on the link or on our Twitter bio or on our homepage. Thank you for listening to The Future of Journalism. I'm Mira Salva. We'll be back soon.